Even though it's been off the air for years, our gang, or the Little Rascals, holds a special place in many Americans' hearts. Created by Hal Roach in 1922, almost 200 short comedy films were made until MGM ended the series in 1944. Our gang depicted poorer children who were running around dirty and barefoot, being mischievous, you know, being kids, and very reminiscent of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, but only with names like Spanky, Buckwheat, Butch, and Chubby. They played games, put on shows in their garage, and got into all kinds of mischief. I came across three of the actors' graves as I was in Los Angeles, and I thought, what the heck? Let's talk about the little rascals. What lies beneath? Froggy, Alfalfa, and Darla. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi, friends and taffophiles. I am your host, Lachelle. Welcome to my podcast, Stones, Bones, and Shadows. We're having a blast here with you every week talking about cemeteries, burials, crypts, and more, and telling you the chilling tales and heartfelt history of what lies beneath. Thank you for being here, and a special thanks to our Patreon members for all of your support. And if you'd like to be a part of our Patreon, head on over to our website, stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com to be a part of the fun. Today, I'm so lucky to have as my co-host, my own rascal, Dallin. How dare you? I am no such thing. Oh, you are the original rascal. Yes, I have been known to endeavor in very riskatalious activities. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. It's going to be one of those days. It's going to be one of those days. Are you excited to hear more about The Little Rascals? You know, I remember watching a bunch of movies when I was younger, but I think they were like the newer ones they that made. could be. And um, so I don't really know anything about the old ones, but um, I remember they were kind of stupid, a little dorky in a way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're super silly. I've been calling you and your brother Spanky on and off your whole life. <laughs> I guess it's my way of just calling you a rascal. Oh, heck. That's where that comes from. Yeah. My life has been a lie. <laughs> spanky. I'm having a serious moment here. Come here, Spanky. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, think about it. You know, you obviously like the names because, you know, with our three foster cats that we have right now, you just name them Spanky, Alpha, Alpha, and Darla. So, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a real rascally month, apparently. It is a rascally month, and we have three rascals at home. Yeah, we foster kittens. So, I guess it's the right time to tell our listeners about our gang. Let's do it. It all started when Brad and I were on a trip to California, and we decided to go into Los Angeles, where his grandmother is buried. And it's been years since she had passed, and we hadn't been able to go back and see her grave marker and um, where she's buried since then, because we don't get into Los Angeles proper very often. And so we went to Rose Hills Memorial Park, 
It says on their website that Rose Hills Memorial Park is the largest cemetery in North America. I believe it. That's crazy, huh? And it's considered by many to be one of the most beautiful cemeteries in the world. There's a lot of people that think their cemetery is the most beautiful. but I do hear that a lot. Yeah. It's been voted America's best cemetery. And the park is known for its natural beauty, panoramic views, and stunning landscape design. And yes, it really is beautiful. There are waterfront areas, mausoleums, chapels, and they offer lawn spaces for both traditional burial and cremation. They say that their lawn spaces possess positive elements of feng shui and distinctive beauty. That is some positive grass. Some positive grass. (laughs) It's like praying a hedge over (laughs) y'all. Some positive grass. Uh, Our grass isn't very positive. It's dead. Our grass is not dead. It's close to it. Positive well, grass. You mean in our cemetery? Yes. <laughs> not our house. Our, our I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> there are private and semi-private estates, they call them, which when you think of an estate, you think like a mansion or something. But these are like a small little walled garden of your own, basically, but it's not gated off. It's another one of those cemeteries that mostly allows for the flat gravestones, so it is just, as far as you can see, grass, basically. Positive grass. Positive grass, um, rolling hills, and it's actually pretty difficult to find a certain grave when it's like that, because there's no distinctive, you know, you're looking for the cross that's on a plinth, that, you know what I'm saying? So it's just kind of hard to find. And there are a few areas of traditional upright stones. And of course, I liked this area the most. And they're mostly the older stones. To me, it just feels like you can have a little more creativity in those. And sometimes, depending on the marker, you can get a little better idea of who is buried there, maybe a little bit about them. So I just like those. But anyway, this place is so huge, it encompasses 1,400 acres. Oh, 1,400. You remember us talking about how huge Bonaventure was at 100 acres and how it was just so difficult to see everything. 1,400. So there you go. We finally ended up having to go get some help from the front office to actually find the grave. That's fair. And then we were able to go leave some roses for his grandmother that loved flowers so much and spend some time there at her grave. And per usual, whenever we are at a cemetery, we will search online to see if there's anyone of particular interest also buried there. And the one that stood out to us was of a 16-year-old boy named Billy Laughlin. And it said that he had played Froggy and the Little Rascals. We were so sad to see that he had died so young. I mean, you're 17, about to turn 18. I mean, just a... 16 year old. 17. Calling on 18. No. no, that is really sad. No, I was just thinking about that. Like, he was Innocent a as a rose. Yep. But yes, it's very sad, very sad indeed. <laughs> and luckily, in this enormous cemetery, it was actually pretty close, and we were able to use find a grave and see where it was. And so, after a bit of searching, we were able to locate his grave. After Rose Hill is when we then went over to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which we've talked about a couple times on the podcast. So we are going back there a little bit today as well. And 
I was just thinking about Froggy, and then I thought, what are the chances that there aren't any of the our gang actors here as well? And there were Darla Hood and Carl Schweitzer. And so we went and found them as well, along with all the others we saw that day in Hollywood Forever. It was pretty overwhelming. It's There's just so many people that you do recognize the name of that, yeah, so many that we wanted to see. Well, I mean, it's like 1,400 acres of flat stones for the most part so i mean right so so rose hill was kind of hard to really see a lot of different headstones and they all look exactly the same it's just a name and so hollywood forever it was just you know it was different where you're like oh look burt reynolds oh look you know right so it was really interesting so i thought it would be fun to talk about these little rascals today and tell you a little bit about the show and the kids that made it a household name even to this day, almost 100 years later. The movie shorts were from the 1920s, and they were sold to television under the names Those Lovable Scallywags with Their Gang and Mischief Makers. Man, those are top notch. (laughs) Starting off in 1922 as silent short films, so those were actually 100 years ago, the series began using sound in 1929. According to NPR, the depiction of black and white children playing together portrayed an idealized idea of what American race relations were like at the time. During the 1920s, it was actually at the height of Jim Crow and the KKK. They were experiencing actually a revival, so it was actually a big deal to have children of different races playing together as though racism didn't affect them at all. Oh, the 1920s were crazy for the KKK. They were wild, my gosh. Yeah, and in some of the shorts, the kids actually made fun of the KKK. They, like, dressed up as them. I'd have to go back and look at them, but there was a whole, there were several bits about making fun of the KKK. So I thought that was good. I know that now some people say that they think that the show is racist and so they don't show it as much as it used to be. So hopefully none of you think that it is. And if you do, maybe explain to me why you think that it is. Sorry if you do. (laughs) Let me know what you think. Let's keep going back to Forrest Gump. A little strange man dressing up in their bed sheets. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. These shorts did not get called Little Rascals until they were packaged for syndication and show on TV starting in 1955 before they were called Hal Roaches. That was his name. That was the producer's name was Hal Roach. Huh. So they were Hal Roaches, our gang. That thing says a bunch of little kids like roaches. (laughs) Hal Roaches, our gang. Maybe it should have been Hal Gang, our roaches. That's that's actually probably more accurate. Our gang in the 1950s TV series, The Little Rascals, originated from the series How Roaches Rascals of 1929, 1931. Why? You know what, y'all? You're just a bunch of little roaches. When Hal Roach sold the series to MGM in 1938, he also sold rights to the name Our Gang. And then in 1950, when Hal Roach bought back the Our Gang films that he produced... MGM would not sell back the name Our Gang, as they had produced their own Our Gang shorts in the 1940s. For their 1950 theatrical reissue and their 1955 television syndication, Hal Roach referred back to his original title card credit, Hal Roach Presents His Rascals, in and rechristened the series The Little Rascals. And they're trading around names like Pokemon cards. (laughs) 
For the home movie market released in 1950 by official films, Hal Roach didn't want to confuse those prints with their theatrical run and had the series called Famous Kids for the home market. <laughs> They're famous, all right. Give a hundred names and one of them will stick, that's for sure. Yes. Fortunately, Blackhawk Films got the rights to sell home movie prints in the late 1960s. They also got the rights to use their new name, The Little Rascals. Nice. Although there were some efforts to revive the series in the 1970s, our gang remained a quintessential product of the first half of the 20th century. That's true. So let's talk about our first little guy, William Robert Laughlin. Let's do it. was Froggy. Oh, Froggy. And he was an American child actor. He's best known for playing Froggy in the Our Gang short films. In its final stretch, which was from 1940 to 1944, and even though he was only on the show for four years, he became one of its most memorable characters. And according to our gang actor Robert Blake, Laughlin was dearly loved. Laughlin was born July 5th, 1932, in San Gabriel, California, to Robert and Charlotte Laughlin. He was the middle child with an older brother named Tommy and a younger brother named Mikey. Laughlin was a beloved child with incredibly doting parents. He was the cutest little guy with blonde hair. He was born with strabismus, also known as crossed eyes, which is a condition in which one's eyes are unable to line up. To try to help his eyesight, Billy had to wear strong, thick glasses in order to see. Which, if you've ever had to wear thick glasses as a kid, you will know that this caused him to be teased a great deal by the neighborhood kids. Because of this, Billy began to withdraw and become timid. According to Find a Grave, Billy's mother decided that to raise his self-esteem and give him a boost of confidence, she would sign him up for drama classes. She also bought him a Popeye puppet from the American cartoon Popeye the Sailor Man. I think most of this audience knows of Popeye the Sailor. I would think so, right? I mean, you know, if you've ever eaten spinach in your life, that's, I don't know if that would actually help you know who Popeye Not is. Not anymore. Uh, if you haven't, go look it up on YouTube. Yeah, we watch him all the time with my dad. He does like watching You guys Popeye. like those old Popeye movies. Indeed. But if you haven't, go look it up on the YouTube. We watched it all the time when we were kids, and so I think that's why your dad still likes to watch it, is it just is kind of funny. But the funny thing, it was even around when Billy was a kid. Oh. Billy the kid. But yeah, Billy, I read Billy the kid. Billy was a kid. I was mad confused. Well, when he was playing with his Popeye puppet, Laughlin would talk as Popeye with Popeye's signature gravelly voice. It was this voice that ended up being his ticket to the silver screen. Dadgummit, that is the worst. <laughs> Man, I feel like I would hate to be known for doing a stupid voice. Like, if that was just your life. Yeah. Oh. Well, Billy was in one of his drama classes when he was overheard doing his Popeye voice by an MGM talent scout who thought that Laughlin would make a great addition to this updated version of the shorts. After a test screen and a positive public reaction, who thought that Laughlin's gravelly voice was so funny, he signed a term contract for our gang. At the ripe old age of seven years old, Laughlin made his debut with the gang in 1940 in the short film The New Pupil, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Those talent scouts, they'll find you. And that's why I sing very loud in the shower. In the first short, The New Pupil, Billy Laughlin's character was named Harold, and he was a cranky little guy with that croaky voice, but his guttural voice quickly led to him being renamed, and after that, they started calling him Froggy. That is borderline depressing. Many people <laughs> over the years didn't believe that this little guy could have done that voice himself, but it was all him. 
Yeah, they believed that he was being overdubbed. Was and dubbed. when you hear it, you do kind of wonder. I mean, this adorable little blonde kid, and he has this super low, crazy, croaky voice. And even though Laughlin was one of the main characters, his character Froggy was used sparingly in order to not overdo the gimmick of his vocal tones, which makes sense. A great example of this is in the short comedy film Waldo's Last Stand. In that short, the gang decides to put on an elaborate show in order to help member Waldo attract people to his lemonade stand. However, they're only able to attract Froggy, and even though he shows up, he refuses to buy a drink. The children attempt to convince him he wants lemonade. They try to coerce him through a song about dryness and thirst, and when that doesn't work, they go so far as to put a heater under Froggy. Even though Billy Laughlin shows up early in this episode, he doesn't speak until his punchline near the end of the short, where he once more refuses to buy a glass of lemonade, stating, I don't have no money, and besides, it's too hot in here. <laughs> and too bad I can't do the voice, because, yeah. you know, but I'm not going to try Well, he did it, so, you know, (laughs) anything's possible. Eventually, the children realize that no one is coming to buy lemonade because all the children who would have already are already involved in the production of the show. Oh, rip. (laughs) He worked in the supporting role to Alfalfa Schweitzer in his first three films and then replaced Alfalfa as the comic lead of the group with the 1941 film when Alfalfa Schweitzer aged out. With our gang being in its final stretch, Hal Roach gave our gang over to MGM, and it was said that the quality of the show kind of suffered. While Hal Roach had wanted to simply make good comedy shorts that also portrayed the difficult world of the Great Depression, MGM tried to push a kids' series that offered a mixture of morality plays and pep talks about American virtues. And since the films were being made close to World War II, the shorts started to include American wartime propaganda and support for the conflict. The result was declining audience interest, and MGM ended up canceling our gang in 1944. Between 1940 and 1944, Billy Laughlin appeared in roughly 30 our gang short films during his four-year stint on our gang, and he used his real voice only once in the 1941 film One, Two, Three, Go. Despite sporadic appearances, Foggy's croaking voice made him an unforgettable fixture of our gang until his final short film, Dancing Romeo. The last Our Gang short film that Billy Laughlin appeared in was Dancing Romeo in 1944. Not only was it the end for him, it was the end for all of their gang because it was the last short film to be produced and released, bringing the series to an end after a run of 220 shorts. Laughlin was at least able to go out with a bang since the final short centered around Froggy's infatuation with Marilyn, a dancer. Froggy is jealous that Marilyn is dancing with another boy, Gerald, and spends most of the film stewing over it. He ends up trying to put on his own dance recital in order to show Marilyn that he is a skilled (laughs) dancer as well. I mean, the things a little boy will do. (laughs) The things we do for love. Yeah, I don't think I'd be caught dead doing that, but hey, props to Froggy. But given his limited dance skills, Froggy makes sure that Mickey and Buckwheat can control his movements with hidden strings. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't even do it himself. He's like, hey guys, make me dance real good. I like her a lot. When Gerald notices the cables, he cuts them and exposes Froggy's deception to everyone. But despite being embarrassingly outed, Froggy discovers that Marilyn likes him back. Stunned, Froggy exclaims, gang, she loves me. Oh, and oh. promptly fades. 
Oh. <laughs> passes out. <laughs> that is a very usual reaction to such an event. With this statement, Froggy utters in his classic croaking voice the very last line of the very last Our Gang short film. After this, Billy Laughlin appeared in one more feature film before he decided to end his acting career. In 1944, Billy had a cameo in the movie Johnny Doesn't Live Here Anymore. This movie was the only on-screen appearance Laughlin had outside of our gang, and the one and only movie in which he used his real voice. In Johnny Doesn't Live Here Anymore, a woman named Kathy moves into an apartment that has been vacated by a Marine on duty. But the Marine, Johnny, neglected to tell her that he'd given copies of his keys to several friends of his, resulting in a string of men coming into the apartment unannounced. One of these men is the young Billy Laughlin, who strolls into the apartment to take a shower and upon discovering that his soap is missing, repeatedly exclaims, Someone stole my soap! At 12 years old, Laughlin once more acts as a comic relief character, and the actress, Simone Simon, can't help but giggle at Laughlin's commitment to the bit. He auditioned for a few more roles before he decided he'd had enough and told his parents that he wanted to leave his acting career behind. He then took on the role of a normal teenager and even took up a paper route. Unfortunately, his life just began, took a literal tragic turn. On August 31st, 1948, Billy Laughlin and his friend John Wilband were delivering newspapers on Laughlin's new Cushman motor scooter near La Puente, California. Billy's parents had just given him the new scooter just two weeks before. The two boys were on the scooter with John driving and Billy throwing the papers, and as John went to make a U-turn, they were hit by a truck. John was in a coma for some time and fortunately survived his injuries, but six hours later, Billy Laughlin died in the hospital on August 31st, 1948. He was just 16 years old. He became the youngest out of any of the other Our Gang actors to pass away. And after his tragic death, there were various imposters with unusual voices who tried to pass themselves off as Froggy over the years. Why? Strange, right? I am the real Froggy. Right. Laughlin was survived by his parents, his two brothers, Claude and Mickey, and his maternal grandmother. And Laughlin, like we said, is interred in the grave in Rose Hills Memorial Park Cemetery in Whittier, California, next to his parents. Okay, so here's a picture, Dallin. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that the cutest little guy? <laughs> so adorable. Oh, gosh. We'll go back after the... We should have done it beforehand and looked at... Watched some of them because they're just so darn cute. Yeah. Our next rascal was freckled and squeaky-voiced, and he had an uncontrollable cowlick, and he had a you-just-can't-keep-him-down personality. Alfalfa? That's right. When you think of alfalfa, these are images that come to mind, and you can't help but smile a little. His Our Gang appearances have made him an unforgettable part of film history, and his is an interesting story with more than its share of difficulty and tragedy as well. Carl Dean Schweitzer was born on August 8, 1927 in Paris, Illinois to George and Gladys Schweitzer. Carl had an older brother, Harold, and the boys would appear in some of the films together. The two boys created quite a sensation singing at auctions and various functions near their parents' farm in Illinois. One time when visiting their grandparents in California, Carl and Harold decided to try their luck at auditioning for Hal Roach's Our Gang series. 
However, the boys had some difficulty getting onto the studio grounds without a pass. So, the two stood outside the commissary, or cafe, for the Our Gang crew and cast, and right in the middle of the midday lunch crowd, they started singing. The commotion actually caught the attention of Hal Roach himself, who then immediately gave the boys roles for the current Our Gang comedy, with the aptly titled 1935 short, Beginner's Luck. Ah. Carl's first nickname in the gang was Hayseed, but eventually it was Alfalfa that stuck. And so within just a few weeks, Alfalfa had established himself as a formidable talent. And that's why you sing loudly all the time. (laughs) You never know. You never know who's going to be listening. Alfalfa's country roots definitely influenced his first appearance in our gang films. However, they soon gave him a different persona as a slick, wise cracking kid with a typical costume of a three-piece suit, <laughs> necktie, and a fedora hat. Really, that one surprises me. Because <laughs> that is not what I remember at all. <laughs> He's remembered for his freckles and for that trademark cowlick. Yes. Always the trademark cowlick. The hair sticking up on the back of his head. Perfectly rolled up straight to a point. You know, nobody's hair could stick up like that I by mean, accident. That thing is like <laughs> three feet tall. <laughs> his singing style evolved during the show as well. He stayed away from his hillbilly tunes and turned into quite the crooner. This was so comically brilliant because his voice, which he made to be off-pitch sometimes and squeaky and would crack sometimes when he was trying to sing some romantic ballad, it was funny. It was funny. It was really funny. Alfalfa, the character, is full of self-esteem with quite a little eye for the ladies. The only thing that can knock him back to reality is Butch, who often makes him the victim of many cruel pranks and threats. Some of these embarrassments, though, are the results of efforts from his friends trying to do what they think is right for him, or just trying to knock his ego down to level. Oh, that's so (laughs) terrible. His character is very dimensional and likable. He's the best friend of Spanky. He's a leader and role model for Porky and Buckwheat, and the number one pursuer of love from Darla. It is for all these reasons that he possibly stands out as the most famous little rascal, second only to Spanky himself. In one of his shows, he and his real brother Harold, who sometimes was nicknamed Slim or Deadpan, are performing on stage at a talent show in Beginner's Luck, singing She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain, but here they are named Tom and Jerry. That's so funny. <laughs> Any relation to the other one? Or is that, just, is that just a thing? I don't know if they were just making fun of Tom and Jerry. Anyway, pretty funny. Well, there you go. Spanky, Porky, Buckwheat, and Alpha Alpha even briefly form a singing group without Harold called the Four Nightingales, their spelling, in Nights in Gales. <laughs> Alpha Alpha briefly explores the luxuries of opera in our gang follies of 1938. And he's always singing, or at times crooning, in Spanky's cellar shows. Wow, yeah. Good for you. And of course, the one true love of Alfalfa's life, even over his joy of singing, is Darla. Even if he once replaces her on the radio in The Pinch Singer. However, his own ego has gotten him in trouble at times. She's not above using Waldo or Butch to make him jealous. And on one occasion, Alfalfa even goes after Marianne, the daughter of the new truancy officer in Sprucing Up, and takes a girl named Muggsy to the movies in The Little Ranger. But in his heart, Darla is the only one for him. Other than singing and pursuing his loves, the shorts have Alfalfa playing football, a short golf game, and even wrestling. 
He plays a detective in Hide and Shriek using a Sherlock Holmes novel as his guide. He skips school and plays hooky to go fishing or to the circus, and with a vivid imagination, he dreams himself into the future at Club Spanky and as a cowboy hero in The Little Ranger. Alfalfa even gets his tonsils out in Men in Fright. So here's a funny couple quotes from the shows. He says, Personality, boy. Personality. And that's Alfalfa's secret of charm explained to Spanky. <laughs> Is it's all about personality, boy. That's what they keep telling me. That's right. Another classic one is, boys that don't go to Sunday school is bad. He was trying to tell Spanky he couldn't skip Sunday school to go fishing. (laughs) It's a dilemma. And then in Russian ballet, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and everything but the truth? Ah, yes. (laughs) Everything but. Also, in Russian ballet, we get the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Is that where that comes from? Is that just a saying? I don't know, but he said, the bigger they are, the harder we fall. Oh, I read that. <laughs> wow. Straight facts, though. Another classic one, a uh, favorite of mine, is there's nobody down here except us dummies. <laughs> nobody down here except us dummies. I mean, that's some self-awareness at its best right there. <laughs> and then, how could a fella with my looks have brothers with faces like them? Alfalfa in, and Roman. In Roman holiday, like roaming. Oh. Uh, Roman. So. Well, then you have the, the movie Roman Holiday. Ro- Roman with, holiday, with right. Gregory Peck, right? That's, that's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. It is said that off screen, his father was often engaged in power struggles with George Spanky, McFarland's father, over billing, screen time, star status, things like that. The boys, however, managed to get along fine with one another. His best friend in the R Gang cast was Tommy Bond, who played his on-screen nemesis Butch. That's that's ironic, actually. <laughs> it's all just, you know, acting. I read that he was kind of a problem child during filming, and he was known for staging pranks on both the crew and his fellow child actors, including his on-screen girlfriend, Darla Hood, who in real life was said to be kind of apprehensive of Schweitzer. Oh my gosh. Low blow. Alfalfa appeared in 61 art gang comedies from 1935 through 1940. And I think when most people think of these days of art gang, they can't help but first bring to mind Alfalfa and Spanky. His character had impact, and his screen image in art gang films cemented his immortality in the film industry. As what happens with all child actors, eventually there came a point where Alfalfa became too mature in voice and appearance to continue with the Our Gang series. He made his final appearance in a short called Kitty Cure in 1940. And as other child actors also see, it's difficult to continue a career without being typecast. People just thought of him as that irrepressible kid alfalfa who sang with a squeak and had a chunk of hair standing up on end. They didn't want to think of him as an adult. And this caused a great deal of frustration for Carl, who had a hard time finding work. He had plenty of bit roles with some really big stars, though, in such films as State of the Union and Pat and Mike, both with Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. My Favorite Blonde with Bob Hope and a series geared around the Gas House Kids, which reunited him with fellow Our Ganger, Tommy Butch Bond. 
Carl also had a cameo in one of the most famous movies of all time. The 1946 classic and my favorite movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember his role in that one, Dallin? I can do this. Was he still a kid? He's more a teenager. Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, is he one of George's buddies? No. Is he at the dance? Yes. Okay. Is he one of the guys who's trying to open up the pool? Yes. Is he the guy who says, I have the key? He's not the guy that has the key. He's the guy that uses the key. He's the guy that uses the key because he's jealous. He wants to dance with Mary. And so he's sitting there all kind of dejected and they're doing, you know, the the Charleston dance off and then the other guy shows them how to open up the dance floor to the oh, swimming pool they underneath. They all just jump in with their with their fancy clothes. <laughs> yeah. That's probably like one of my favorite parts of that movie and he's like and did you further know that George <laughs> Bailey is dancing on the crack of the pool? <laughs> right. And I have the key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the guy Carl I mean he just kind of points in the air it's such he looks so much like Alfalfa at that moment where he's like uh-huh. Yeah I had no idea. And every time anyone sees that movie, like we all go, it's Alfalfa. Wow. All right. Well, but try as he may, Alfalfa could never eclipse the show. And see, we just still call him Alfalfa. Carl couldn't get away from the show, our gang. It must have been hard and a disappointment to him and to all childhood actors, really, to have to remain children or teenagers and not be accepted, you know, in the normal process of growing up. And it's like for them, the public wants and expects them to stay those adorable kids they are in the movies. And then to have producers that he wanted a job from, always asking him to sing off key for them, it had to be frustrating. That that would really suck. Yeah. Also in the movie White Christmas, 1954, the photo that Vera Allen shows to Bean Crosby and Danny Kaye of her brother Benny is actually a photo of Carl Schweitzer. Oh, that's a new one. I wasn't in the movie, but <laughs> my photo my was. My photo was. I, I played her little either. brother with no role. I had no idea about that one either. Sadly, his later life became an almost textbook example of the former child star whose life takes a turn for the worse. He worked tending bar, and he had numerous brushes with the law. For all his problems, Schweitzer did have notable success as an adult as a highly regarded hunting guide in Northern California. That is pretty cool. That's pretty cool, but like insanely surprising. Right. I mean, that's a that's a transition. There's a bunch of his life that we don't know. Well, his regular clientele included Roy Rogers and James Stewart, and a breeder of hunting dogs. Wow. Yeah, so he was kind of into hunting. I mean, we must have been if he was guiding people like Roy Rogers and Jimmy Stewart. By the end of the 1950s, Carl's married, but they quickly divorced. His former wife remarried and raised the son that she had with him named Lance, without really ever telling him who his real father was. Well, that's no way to live a life. I know. And this, of course, raises a lot of modern-day questions of visitation and child support, but we just got to remember that this is the 1950s, and it was just different then. Right. And then yeah, he didn't live that long, so the, I guess that was easy to do. Dad gum. In January 1958, Carl was shot and wounded by an unknown assailant who was never caught. Wow. I mean, do you think like they like like knew like that's ah, Alpha Alpha? Let's get the guns. Or... I have no idea. Interesting. And then on January twenty first, nineteen fifty nine, Carl Schweitzer was shot to death in an argument over a fifty dollar debt. Yeah, so he was shot and wounded before, and then this time he was shot and killed 
Oh, I thought he was shot and killed the last time he got shot. Oh, I no, see. No, he wow. was shot twice. Wow. Two different times. And it was over $50 owed him by his former partner in the big game hunting business. Oh, wow. The slaying, which took place on Columbus Avenue, San Ferdinando Valley, was ruled a justifiable homicide since it was alleged that Carl had threatened the other man with a knife. And so it was kind of like, I don't know, I read several different articles about this and it was like there was a dog involved, one of their bred dogs that I don't know if it was missing and then... They put out a $50 reward and then the reward was only given in like $15 and drinks or something. And then I thought he was owed money. And anyway, it's so convoluted that I couldn't totally figure out exactly what happened. But anyway, there was a fight and he threatened his partner. And so his partner actually shot and killed him. Well, there you go. It's a sad and tragic end to a life that brought such joy to so many people. And Carl was just 31 years old at the time of his death. He's buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and later his father and brother were buried next to him. And an interesting fact is he died on the same day as Cecil B. DeMille. Oh, wow. Coincidentally, one of his final acting roles was an uncredited appearance as a slave in The Ten Commandments, the last film which DeMille directed. Wow, that is a movie. Right. That is a movie. That's, that's a movie. I mean, pretty much everyone in that movie was uncredited because there was like thousands of Cast people. Cast of thousands, yeah. In any given shot. Exactly. <laughs> you see that uh, broken down, whipping slave right there? Yeah, the one screaming? Me. That was me. Yes. Must be so impressed, Mom. Exactly. Many people believe that the dog in his grave referred to Petey of Little Rascal's fame because someone had painted a ring around the dog's eye. The dog was a reference to his abilities as a breeder of a hunting dog. So it was really, you know, a lot of people put things on their graves about what they did well. And so that's kind of interesting that that's what's on his grave is a dog. But that's I mean, all right. Yeah. I just, it's all good. Out of all the things he felt like he accomplished in his life, you know, breeding dogs was what he thought he did, right? Yeah. Or what his family put on i mean that's usually it's sadder. not your own grave that Gosh. you put that on that's almost sadder that's the case like well he sure bred a lot of dogs so here you go <laughs> you're a nut <laughs> i'm just saying like, i feel like i'd be up in heaven and be like dude the dogs really not little rascals not being whipped as a slave for 10 seconds gosh <laughs> it was the dogs really so next and last we're going to talk about little darla she was the darling of the group she was born Darla Jean Hood. Darla was played by Darla. They actually used their real names for the most part, but then they ended up giving them like these funny nicknames. And so she actually, yeah, just she was Darla. And there was, I think they tried to give her some different names. I think it was Cookie. Oh, gosh. As a nickname, but it just never stuck, and they just all Good. called her Darla. Well, she has one of the few distinctions of not having some weird butt name. Right. She was born on November 4th, 1931, in Leedy, Oklahoma. Her father, James, was a banker, but it was her mother, Ruby, who encouraged her little girl to take singing and dancing lessons in nearby Oklahoma City. Darla was a beautiful child with dark curly hair, a little turned-up nose, round cheeks, dark eyes, and with her singing and dancing talents, her teachers recognized early that she had talent and star appeal. 
They thought so highly of Darla that they brought her along on a trip to New York City. One night at the Hotel Edison in Times Square, she made an unscheduled and impromptu singing debut when the band leader invited this little dynamo to actually conduct the orchestra and sing. And the crowd just roared with laughter and applause. They fell in love with this little girl. And by coincidence, and like every one of these kids, it just seems like they just happen to be seen, which is so interesting. Joe Rivkin, who was a casting agent for Hal Roach Studios, spotted the four-year-old scene stealer, and Rivkin arranged for an immediate screen test in Manhattan. The result was that the little darling Darla was whisked to Hollywood, where she was signed by Hal Roach to a seven-year contract starting at $75 a week. And from there, a major star was born. The R Gang Follies of 1936 was already deep in production, but Roach's new find was hastily written into the musical review, singing, I'll never say never again, again. This was all it took to solidify Darla's new role as R Gang's leading girl. Act and dress like a town scout is watching every second of your life, because they <laughs> probably are. Darla went on to perform in 51 of the popular short films, plus a TV movie. She said of her off-camera time on set, that it was lonely as the boys tended to group together and play such boys games such as baseball and football. During this time, she also appeared in a Laurel and Hardy feature films, The Bohemian Girl. From 1935 to 1941, she continued to play in Our Gang. She was usually the love interest of Alfalfa, played by Carl Schweitzer. But sometimes Butch or Waldo, one of her more memorable moments, was singing I'm in the mood for love. And the pinch singer. <laughs> Which is so funny. A little four or five-year-old singing, I'm in the mood for love. It's, I am in the mood. It's adorable. She was initially tutored for school on the Roach Studio lot by a Mrs. Alma Rubens. And when the series was later sold to MGM, the gang then attended the famous Little Red Schoolhouse on the MGM lot. And that's that's where they got schooling? Or Yeah. Wow. During World War II, very few of the R-Gang shorts were made due to the scarcity of film at the time. A majority of them were saved for feature-length wartime propaganda films. So by the time this series was to be finally revived in 1945, she had already outgrown her role. As we mentioned with Carl Schweitzer, that awkward transition from being a cute little kid to becoming a teenager was also hard for Darla and for many members of our gang. She was almost 12 years old, and imagine how difficult it must have been for a child of that age to resign yourself to the fact that the public that had just adored you last year now stopped simply because you got older. Darla made this period of her life much easier simply by improvising. While she would never be at the same level of stardom that she had as a young girl, Darla now used her talents her vocal gifts to have a successful and busy career as a behind-the-scenes performer. She said later, I felt I had let my fans down by not remaining a child. Oh, that's sad. My gosh. They'd be dying to meet me, and yet I could see their faces fall when I walked into the room. What do you say to someone whose fantasy has just been disturbed? That is sad, huh? Oh, my gosh. Someone be like, ah, darling, and they'd be like, who are you? Gawky <laughs> teenager person. Gosh. So sad. After she grew up, fans who requested an autographed photo seemed disappointed when they received a current shot, so she sent out newly signed photos from her R Gang days instead. 
And I feel like that's that's a thing for a lot of actors, actually. Probably so. You know, they they're really important for a little bit, and then they're like, oh, haha. Sorry, I'm older. Than it, like Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. yeah, that's a great example. Shirley Temple, actually, Shirley Temple's on politics later on, but still, you know. Yeah, she like made that. she made some more movies, but yeah, it's like everyone just wanted him to stay little. Or the kid that played Kevin in Home Alone, he looks kind of creepy now. Okay, that's Macaulay Culkin. Oh, <laughs> see, you said it, but I didn't really like. I didn't know who that was, and I wanted to pretend <laughs> like I did just to pretend like I I knew what you were talking about. This is embarrassing. Oh goodness. Oh yeah, we'll see if Taylor's gonna take that. Oh out. my gosh, I'm so I think that's the blooper reel right there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he looks pretty creepy now, so you know. Darla claimed that her parents never gave her a penny of the earnings she made from the art gang shorts. Wow, if that's the case, then like kind of awkward. That's so cool, right? Yeah. That your child makes all that money and then you don't even put it in a fund for them a savings account piggy bank i mean i would hate to be a parent who's like seven-year-old kid is making more money than you are but also (laughs) yeah just put it in a bank or something yeah not cool not cool she then attended school in los angeles while at fairfax high school she organized a vocal group called darla hood and the enchanters with four boys Shortly after graduation, the quartet was booked by producer and vaudeville star Ken Murray for his famous Blackouts, a stage variety show. The group remained with Murray's Blackouts during its long run in New York City and Hollywood. And this group provided background music for many 1940s films, such as A Letter to Three Wives. And one of those boys became her first husband, Robert W. Decker, whom she married when she was 17. Ah, the ripe marriage age of 17. Yes. She also did stage work and appeared as a regular on the television programs like Tell It to Groucho and once made a guest appearance on the Jack Benny program in which they did a spoof on the Art Gang series with Jack Benny playing Alfalfa and Don Wilson as Spanky. And of course, you're so young, you have no idea who Jack Benny or any of these people are. No, I have no are, idea who those people but, are. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, our listeners that are a little mature will understand these things. She had a nightclub act, which had bookings at the Coca Cabana in New York, the Sahara in Las Vegas, and the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles. In 1955, she was even a leading lady in the act of ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. In 1957, Darla was a regular performer on the Merv Griffin show. What, what, was, was she the, the dummy in the, the ventriloquist? Oh, you're so funny. No, I'm dead serious. You're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> oh, well, she could have been. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Other credits include a hit record, I Just Want to Be Free. I want to break free. <laughs> and a duet with Johnny Desmond that was in the movie Calypso Heatwave. Between 1959 and 1962, she recorded several singles for the small Ray Note and Acma labels. In June of 1957, at the age of 25, she divorced her first husband after eight years of marriage and by whom she had her first two children, one son Brett and one daughter Darla Jo. So she married her former manager, Jose Granson, a musical publisher. She and Granson had three children together, One of her Our Gang friends, Tommy Butch Bond, mentioned that her marriage to Granson was difficult later because he was in a wheelchair following a stroke, so she must have needed to care for him quite a bit. Yeah, so that's, that would have been hard. In January of 1959, she released another record, Quiet Village, 
A one-time Hal Roach talent agent, Joe Rivkin, who discovered Darla as a child, if you remember, he saw the cover and then cast her in her first adult role in a movie. She acted as a secretary in Vincent Price's cult horror classic movie, The Bat. And of course, Vincent Price had the leading role. And that's the guy that made all the Edgar Allan Poe ones, didn't he? That was the oh, same yeah. guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. is in the thriller music, saying the creepy part in the middle. Is that him? Yeah. Oh, wow, man. Yeah. Michael he's, J. really. He's so amazing. He really made. We're, we're talking about Mikey J there, right? We are. Okay, I was. I don't know if we're talking about someone else. That didn't seem to clash real good. Darla found the most versatile use for her unique three-octave voice. That is impressive. Mm-hmm. Was that of voiceover work in cartoons and commercials. That's fair. She was the voice of such products as Campbell Soups. That's, that's, that's high society right there. Hey, a girl's got to make a living. Campbell Soup. The Tiny Tears doll, and most famously sang, Ask any mermaid you happen to see, What's the best tuna chicken of the sea? Thank you. So that is what she sang. In time, she became a great impressionist and trick voice artist. Darla attended numerous festivals and conventions held throughout the 60s and 70s. She just kept working, kept on going, and these were celebrating the legacy of our gang. She also organized a reunion of the kids' stars at a 1979 Laurel and Hardy convention sponsored by the team's fan club, the Sons of the Desert. Unfortunately, she could not attend. Darla entered the hospital in spring 1979 for a routine appendectomy. However, she then contracted acute hepatitis from a transfusion that she received during the surgery. So then on June 13th, 1979, the complications led to congestive heart failure and she passed away at a Hollywood hospital and she was just 47 years old. Oh, I'm never gonna trust blood transfusions again. Well, things are a lot different than in those days. They didn't realize how many diseases and Uh, things were carried in the blood. So now, but what if they don't clear the needle? Oh, they do, babe. But what if they don't? <laughs> they do. <laughs> now, now it's all good. It's it's all right. The Our Gang community was stunned at Darla's unexpected death. Fellow Our Gang member Billy Buckwheat Thomas said, "I hate to hear it. It's a shock. She was an awfully nice person, a fine woman. We got along real good as kids." And then Thomas himself died just a little over a year later. During a lecture at Murray State University in 1985, Spanky attributed Billy Buckwheat Thomas's death to a broken heart over Darla. Oh. <laughs> probably not, but, you know. Probably not. A clinical diagnosis. kind of sweet and sad. <laughs> Following her funeral, she was also buried at Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery, which was then later renamed Hollywood Forever. Darla Hood rests in the Abbey of the Psalms. It's one of their mausoleums. It's an outside mausoleum, and so there's just these big, tall walls of marble, granite, and then there's a niche for each casket to go in, and then it has a plaque on the outside. Very interesting. But these are outside. It's open on both 
ends. So of you can it. see you the can, bodies. No, <laughs> you can look. You can look down the hallway to the outdoors. To like the bodies. Just, just stop it. <laughs> <laughs> they're open at the ends of the rows to the outdoors, so you can kind of walk through each of the mausoleum corridors. And of course, it's California. It's Hollywood. It's all sunny and and nice. So yes. Sunny. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Billy Laughlin, Darla Hood, and Carl Schweitzer weren't the only members of our gang to die young. Like I mentioned, Buckwheat died young of a heart attack. Robert Hutchkins, who played Weezer, died in an airplane accident during military training at the age of 19. And Norman Chaney, who played Chubby, died young at the age of 22 after an operation. After so many members of our gang succumbed to tragic fates people began to think that there was some kind of curse afflicting the child actors. The actors William Thomas, Darla, of course, and Scotty Beckett, they all ended up dying before they even reached the age of 50. And then Robert Blake, he continued to act later and was still pretty famous, but he didn't die young, but he was tried for his wife's murder. Oh my gosh. And he was acquitted, but that's a whole nother story altogether. Tune in next week for Stones, Bones, and Shots. <laughs> no, don't, don't take me seriously on that. And even the original dog that played Petey was fatally poisoned in 1930 at age three. His son, Petey the dog, continued in the series and lived to age 17. Oh, wow. So there was kind of some strange strangeness there, but really when you count how many children played and the years that they were in. And now you know why he's my little <laughs> rascal. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan, for helping me to tell the story of the little rascals today. Yes, ma'am. The legend of our gang and the little rascals will live on forever. The films of our gang syndicated on television as the little rascals pass on from generation to generation and are as appealing now as in their own day. Scores of memorabilia pieces from figurines to dolls to lunchboxes keep the memory of these delightful child actors alive and well. There was even a 1970s cartoon series based on the popular gang films and even a feature movie in 1994 called The Little Rascals. And even though these actors left this life early, we watch them and their hilarious antics, and they will be remembered fondly and will remain forever young. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. <laughs>